0: Hey, everybody, and welcome to the One Wildlife Podcast with me, Abby Barnes. This is simply a show about life, and as such, there are no boundaries to where our conversations can take us. Along the way, we hope to inspire, empower, educate, and uplift, exploring how we can all live our best lives. Before we get started, I want to mention that this podcast is hosted by Spend More Time in the Wild which I founded in 2016 to help individuals get outside for the benefit of mental and physical health. Over the last few years, the project has grown into a worldwide community of passionate and courageous individuals working together to enjoy the beauty of our wild spaces and protect them for generations to come. You can find out more about both the podcast and wild by visiting www.spendmoretimeinthewild.co.uk. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening or head on to YouTube to watch the full episode. Today's guest is a lifelong naturalist who is passionate about communicating the wonders of the natural world to the widest possible audience. Stephen Moss is one of the country's leading nature writers who has authored and co-authored over 30 non-fiction books on birding and wildlife. Since 2001, he has written a monthly column for The Guardian and regularly contributes articles to popular magazines such as BBC Wildlife and Birdwatch. But his enthusiasm for sharing The Wild World doesn't just cover writing. He is a former producer at the BBC Natural History Unit with a flourishing TV career spanning three decades. Perhaps most notably, Stephen was the original producer of the BAFTA-winning Springwatch series, which first aired in 2005. Stephen's dedication to his mission is admirable. He has travelled to all of the world's continents in search of wildlife and in 2009 was one of the first recipients to be awarded the British Trust for Ornithology's Dilly's Breeze Medal at the House of Lords. He is a senior lecturer and course leader at Bath Spa University and an honorary professor at Nottingham University too. However, despite his impressive travel diary and extensive understanding of nature worldwide, Stephen says nothing is as good as the wildlife on your doorstep. He lives in Somerset with his wife, five children, and their dog Rosie. Stephen, welcome to the One Wildlife podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Abby. Lovely to be involved.
0: How are you doing today? How are you coping?
1: Yeah, not bad. I've just taken Rosie for a walk, and I—it's I, not a great day. A few red wings flying over field there in the mm. field over the road. So you know, there's a few birds, but. You know, Like a lot of people, I think we're finding lockdown three a bit Groundhog Day-ish.
0: That's it. So we're in January 2021. We're New year, new us, but no, we've gone back down into lockdown here in the UK and it's a little bit suffocating in, in some ways, but um, I can imagine you've got plenty of projects to keep you busy.
1: Yes, uh, I did say because I turned 60 earlier this year and last Christmas I said to Suzanne, oh, I know I'll try to wind down a bit this year. Well, I suppose I did a bit in the first lockdown, although I ended up writing a book during it that wasn't expected. But I haven't really wound down, so no, just carrying on working. But I'm lucky I do a job which... you. If it wasn't my job, it would be my hobby.
0: That's it. We are, I'm on the same boat. It is a privilege, isn't it? But actually, you know, I wanted to kick this off. There is so much I wanted to talk about. Honestly, writing your introduction has taken a fair while. You know, I've, I've had fun stalking you on all the platforms, uh, finding out as much information as I can. Um, and, and it's just incredible, all the, all the things that you've done. But I want to go right back with you initially. So we have known each other for quite a while and I was trying to think, when was it
1: that we first connected? Can you remember? I'm pretty certain it was I think we'd contacted each other through a focus on nature through A form mm. but then we met when we were filming at on the Somerset Levels. I think Graham oh, Graham Graham Hatherley yeah. yeah. he was there and you were with him, and i can 't remember if we met just before that or whether that was the first time we met mm. but yes, and then I remember my family took you up to Bird Fair, gave you a lift up there, and uh, we had a great time. And that was now six years ago, which is a bit shocking, Wow, yeah, fire that was fire.
0: the um, great British wildlife revival wasn 't it, on the levels that was being filmed then, I think.
1: That's right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, good series. Um, yeah.
0: And bird fair. I mean, what happened with bird fair 2020? I kind of, I'm out of the loop with that a bit at the moment.
1: It went virtual, uh, and it was fine. You know, we did something, but you know, I've been for the last 28 years and it's my favorite weekend of the year by miles. Um, cause you meet so many people. I still meet new people there. And of course I meet a lot of people I've known for most of my life and I really missed it this year. Um, last year so last august but hopefully 2021
0: it'll happen that's it I, i'm optimistic you know i think everyone's doing the right thing and um well we'll just see how the how the world evolves with covid in the picture but um it'll be really good to get back to the face-to-face uh kind of stuff wouldn't it so yeah well you know you describe yourself stephen as as a lifelong naturalist and again I, I'm, I'm trying to go right back so how did you or where did your interest in, in wildlife and the outdoors start?
1: I have to say lifelong naturalist I do say that and I'm pushing mm. it a bit because it is <laughs> lifelong but for about the first 37 years it was basically birds and then I met Bill Oddy who knew a lot about birds and knew almost as much about everything else and I was slightly embarrassed working with Bill so I learnt a lot more so I would now call myself a naturalist um, but it all started with birds as it does with so many people and it's actually I literally can't remember I have a photograph that I found again the other day of me in my mother's garden I was about a year and a bit old I'm toddling I'm wearing the most extraordinary sort of knickerbocker outfit that children were put in most <laughs> in far-off days and I'm holding my hand out to a jackdaw which must have been a tame bird I think that escaped Mm-hmm. and was sitting on the rockery and that's the that's my er bird the jackdaw that's number one and then number two is what my mother used to call a funny black duck that turned out to be a coot where a couple of years later when I was about three again I can't remember this but she took me to feed the ducks down at the River Thames near where we lived near West London and I saw some funny black ducks asked her what they were and she said I don't know dear but we've got a book the Observer's book, book of birds and i literally memorized it i was a very precocious child and i memorized it from cover to cover mm. um and it all kicked off with that really so i don't actually remember not being interested in in birds and not That's knowing it. what at least some birds are
0: mm. whereabouts in the uk where you living
1: then we lived in Shepperton, which was is famous for the studios, as everyone used to say. Um, we were quite lucky; we were the last houses in the village at the time, still are, uh, and you know the, the place is still there like that. And and we backed onto some fields, and there were gravel pits very nearby. So as a child, from about the age of four or five, I'd nip over the fence to what we called the forest, which was a strip of elm trees and scrub, at least twenty feet wide. Um, with a lane behind it. And then after that, when I was seven or eight, I started going down to the local gravel pits and saw things like Great crested grebes, And, you know, again, it, that really helped. So th- th- that suburb, what the great nature writer, Kenneth Allsop once called the, the messy limbo that is neither town nor country, Mm. Was where I grew up. I'm oh, not. A, I, you know, I always say to David Lindo, I'm, "I'm certainly not the urban birder. I suppose I'm now the <laughs> rural birder. For most of my life, I was the suburban birder."
0: That's it. Well, you get a mixture of species, don't you, with your urban and and rural, so kind of winning there in oh, one way.
1: Fantastic, <laughs> fantastic place to start watching birds. You know, there were a lot of birds. Stains Reservoirs was, you know, a few miles cycle right away. Bushy Park, where a friend of mine, Daniel, lived. Um, we used to go there. You know, so it wasn't a bad place to be brought up, really.
0: Mm. But what was it about birds for you? Like, because, you know, it could have been been mammals, it could have been reptiles. Like, what was it specifically about birds?
1: I think for most people, it's birds simply because you don't see the other things. You have to go and search for mammals and reptiles. Mm, Uh, Reptiles, butterflies, dragonflies, wildflowers are mostly, not all, but mostly seasonal. And birds aren't. You know, Mm. birds are part of all four seasons. And I think we noticed this even, you know, the other day on January the 1st, I went for some walks around the garden in the morning um, and then round the loop at the back of my house, which is my new local patch in lockdown, and saw about 35 species of bird. Well, you know, I probably saw one mammal if I saw a squirrel or a rabbit. <laughs> That's true. And, and so I think birds tend to be the, the, the entry point for most people. Mm. Since then, I've got into other things that fly, so I'm quite into... Butterflies, dragonflies. i i claim to be into moths, but my friend and your neighbour, Dominic Cousins, says that I'm hopeless at moths and he's probably <laughs> um, so yeah, but it's things that fly really. Appeal
0: mm, to that's me. That's nice. It's almost uh gives us a sense of freedom as well, doesn't it? It's a one degree thinking, where's that bird come from? You know, especially migratory species, there's it's more than just some of them being local birds. It's you know, they're they're transient with the seasons, and that's
1: very exciting and something to look forward to as well. Absolutely. I mean, interestingly, during lockdown, I wrote at one point about two birds, similar names, sparrow and swallow.
0: Mm.
1: One, the sparrow spends its entire life within a mile of where it was born in our village. And the swallow flies 6,000 miles.
0: It's just incredible.
1: And it is extraordinary, isn't it? When you start thinking. that? And I've written three books now about the wildlife of my parish or my local area. Uh, and, and, Each time I marvel at, you know, it never, it never, I never tire of the fact that this year, as I said, a little bit of Senegal had come to Somerset when a Hmm. sensual sat up and sang at me back in April, you know, and and the more you know about birds and any wildlife, the more exciting it gets. And of course, you never, you don't even know a fraction of everything. Mm. which i quite like as well there's always
0: something to learn yeah it's like you open a door to learning one thing and that's just an endless corridors of of opportunities to go down to learn and explore more things and in that it connects you with you know different parts of the local landscape and then as we've talked about further afield as well no it's it's brilliant so okay so you you know as a a child and as a you know an, an adolescent you you were interested in birds you were getting out um finding your local wildlife i'm presuming so how did it then go from from hobby and passion to career so most specifically you know you you you're very well known for your writing you're very well known for your work in 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 producing um tv series so how did
1: how did all of this evolve both of them funnily enough came quite late and when i meet as i do uh, a lot of, and talk to a lot of fantastic young people who are wonderfully involved in wildlife, like yourself and so many other people nowadays. You know, I know I'm, I'm privileged to know so many of that generation and it's exciting. They often want, they're in a bit of a hurry. And I say, look, you know, I didn't publish my first book till I was in my early thirties and I didn't do my first wildlife TV programme till my late thirties, you know, so you have got time <laughs> and you don't need to rush. And in my case, I I think writing was always looking back was always my passion I was good at English and I was very lucky to go to an extremely good free state grammar school which got me into Cambridge mm. and I ended up editing the student newspaper there and then applying for and amazingly getting a job at the BBC as a trainee producer. I remember my mother saying to me, what's a TV producer do, darling? And I said, I don't know. I'll let you know when I find out. <laughs> and I still don't really know. But, um, you know, because it's, it's quite a, it's not a, a job that's as definable as, for example, a journalist. Mm. But I always wanted to write. And TV doesn't give you many opportunities to do that. So I joined the BBC and I was making educational programmes and enjoying it. But I had this deep frustration all the way through my 20s and I started a family, got married, I started a family. I, I had you know, a good job, quite a busy job. And I kept trying to get things published and I couldn't. And I kept trying to write about birds and I couldn't. And then it was actually, I remember when it was now, it was 1989. I went to Israel with um, Sunbird, a trip with uh, Killian Milani and the late Peter Grant. And there was a chap on there, Richard, who was editing Birders World magazine, Birding World? Birding World magazine, anyway, (laughs) magazine. And I said to him, look, I've just done this amazing trip to the Negev desert with an amazing man called Hadaram Shurahai. Can I write you an article about it? And he said, yeah, all right, then. So that was my first proper commission. And I wrote this feature article. And then I started doing a little bit more a little bit for The Guardian. And then birdwatch magazine started and the great dominic mitchell the editor of that at the time um i think i met him a couple of times and i wrote to him and said could i do an article um on birds and weather for you because mm-hmm. I'd, I'd done a tv series on the weather and he said oh could you do two and it was like oh yeah all right then <laughs> and i did two and then i got a letter this is how long ago this is this is back in the early 90s a letter from a publisher named joe hemmings and joe um said, oh, I've always wanted to publish a book on birds and weather. Would you like to write it? Wow. And what was interesting was, in the meantime, way back, 10 years earlier than that, I'd met the great Bill Oddy. And Bill and I chatted about birds. And when we departed, when we parted our ways, he said, if you ever get a chance to be a producer and make a series on watching, I'd love to present it. And so year after year, I put this idea and nothing happened. And then I wrote my book on birds and weather. And suddenly, my colleagues in television said, oh, he's written a book. Mm. No matter that it sold about 2,000 (laughs) copies compared to television where you get, you know, millions of viewers. It impressed them. Mm. And my boss, who I'm still friends with, I chatted to her yesterday, said, let's put that idea again in again. She put it in, and the controller of BBC Two said, oh, yes, all right, we'll we'll take that. And I suddenly found myself making television programmes about birds. Wow. And we thought it was going to be a one off. Bill and I both did. We did six part series for BBC Education, not the Natural History Unit. And then very sadly, at the end of it, and it had gone out and I'd had the pleasure of seeing my mother being very excited by it, she then died. And I took some time off work and I came back to work. And there was another letter, it was letters. There was email by them, but it was a letter from a man called Alastair Fothergill. Alastair Fothergill is the man behind all Perfect Planet and all these huge series. You know, he is the Al- Alex Ferguson of wildlife filmmaking, You know, the Michelangelo, the, you know, the, top, the top man. And he said, oh, I really enjoyed your series on Birding with Bill. Um, I gather you've had a second one commissioned. <laughs> no one had told me. Um, would you like to come and make it at the BBC Natural History Unit, which is rather like when you play for Yeovil Town? No offence to Yeovil Town being asked to come and play for Manchester United or Liverpool. And we were like, Bill and I were like, okay. So it sort of (laughs) happened by accident. And I have to confess that Until then, part of me, when I was in my 20s, people would say to me, you like birds, why don't you go make programmes in Bristol? I said, well, it's in Bristol and I live in London and I'm married Mm. with two kids. And it's my hobby. I don't want to turn my hobby into my job. Oh, turns out I did want to turn my hobby into my (laughs) job. But I did it later on. And what advice I would give young people is: don't necessarily turn your hobby into your job straight away. Because yeah. all the years I spent making TV programs about people, language series I made, it was called called Viva, about you know how to learn Spanish. I had the most fantastic time. I met yeah. wonderful people. I worked with amazing people. I went to some amazing places, and that was really good for me. Mm. Rather than spending my whole life doing you know the hobby and it's a tricky one um because in the end you have to seize the chance when it comes but as I say in my case it came quite late I was by then I was 37 I left education department in London I was the oldest series producer there I was about to move up into some horrible middle management job and I turned up in Bristol and I was the youngest series producer in Bristol because people stay there forever and it was like all right I'll now (laughs) spend another 15 years doing this which is exactly what I did so um,
0: it worked well, that, quite well that, that is a is a super story and I feel you you know there's some really great takeaways there for listeners but you also touched on a few really valuable things that I'd like like you sort of brushed over and you know you talk about writing you know and and, and not having books accepted or, or articles that you know trying to find that way in and for me the word that comes up there is, is resilience and, and determination um was there, What was the emotion behind that? Like, was there ever a point where you were hitting roadblocks and you felt frustrated?
1: Oh, yeah, for years. Mm. And because I had a proper job, and in those days, <laughs> improper jobs – you had to go in every day, and you were there every day. So it was quite hard to motivate myself, particularly when I had young children, to, to send these articles off. So I wasn't being that persistent. You know, I was sending perhaps one or two off every year ideas. I was contacting Travel Guardian, I'm going to Israel, can I do an article? Never heard anything, you'd ring them up, they hadn't heard of you. You know, this is pre-email, so you had to write a letter. You know, so I, I didn't actually try that hard. You know, have I been unemployed, I would have probably tried a lot harder ironically the sort of the the job market as it is now does in this terrible way create for some people not everyone it, it creates that resilience because they have to they have no option i had you know because i had a secure job and a salary it was harder to do it but then once it started it was that little break of getting that article in birding world and i think roughly at the same time a very short piece in the guardian And it was little things like that. And and one thing led to another. Little things led to slightly bigger things. The two articles in Birdwatch led to me writing for Birdwatch, but also being commissioned to do that book. Mm. That then really, in a sense, led to the TV series. So what I would always say to people is, it's really hard in today's world. Things moved a lot slower in those days. But be patient and just keep banging on. Because in the end someone a contact of a contact of a contact will go hang on didn't we hear six months ago from that woman or that guy who was interested in actually we've got an opportunity for that have you still got their email oh yeah let's ring them up or you know and that's how it happens but it was it was yeah it wasn't hard because i had a job you know i was really lucky in those days you had a job effectively for life but in a funny sort of way that meant you didn't have the urgency. To do things, and I, I have a huge admiration and respect for not just the younger generation because now, of course, people are losing their jobs in their middle age, but people I know are taking up new things all the time and, and pushing at new doors and, and pushing themselves out of their comfort zone. You know, I hated ringing commissioning editors up and saying, Oh, did you get my letter about the article I could have done? You know, I yeah. wasn't very good at it, and I've you know, I felt embarrassed. But then every now and then one would say, Yeah, all right. Yeah, send it to me, yeah, next week. <laughs> and you go, Oh, it's right, okay. Well, I'll get on that. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's funny when it happens. I see it with my students. I teach travel and nature writing to a lot of students of all ages, from twenty to in their seventies. And they're very often they've had some of them have had very high power jobs, some of the older ones, and they're still really reluctant to get in touch with someone who hasn't responded to them when they've tried Mm. to get a commission. I say, look, you just have to do it. Mm. And don't be offended when they say no. That's it. Lots of people will say no. You only need one person to say yes.
0: Yeah.
1: And that then leads to something else. And it is, that's, that's something I have learned over the years.
0: Mm. No, I I really, I really see that, you know, and, and it's nice to hear that in your story because I feel, you know, with somebody like yourself who has the credentials that you have or the, you know, the the breadth and depth of everything that you covered. Um, as you say, you know, a young person, um, you know, I remember feeling it myself when we connected, it's like that pressure, like, Oh, I need to get to that quote unquote status. You know, I have so much to do and you're buzzing with it and it's exciting. And you're almost need to just take a step back and you know for me my mental health caused me to stay, take a step back and sort of figure out um, what was what what could I manage how could I look after myself who, who actually am I you know and and then in building that relationship with myself I felt more confident and able to put myself out there because a no coming my way I could handle much steadier and in, in a much healthier way um, you know and, and I think I'd also like to add to what you're saying there is I think you know we're talking about people who are potentially already communicating with somebody they're already trying to get their work out there but i think there's a lot of barriers to even get to that point you know some people might say oh well there's endless bird books or there's endless travel books like why 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 should anyone want to read mine but the thing is you know i really stand by the fact well they haven't it hasn't been written by you it's not your version it's not your take it's not your story um where do you stand with that
1: Well we with the students I always say with any book ideas and they come up with lots of book ideas and some get published and and some are on the cusp of being published now and we always say look there are three questions you need to ask yourself why this why me why now Mm. and why this is very important a lot of people want to write a sort of memoir well that's really tricky. Unless you're really interesting or you have a very unusual story to tell, and Dara McAnulty, of course, would be the obvious example. Dara had a unique story to tell. Um, it's really hard to see why anyone would publish it. And to be fair on Dara, little Toller had the, the you know, guts to take a 16-year-old and do his book. Well done to them. I don't know if he took it to other publishers. Mm. Um, but the point is, he had a unique, you know, a, a, a why this he also had a why me and why now you know, people are getting more interested in autism and, and all those um, different things. Yeah. But for most people, a memoir, you know, particularly younger people, that's not really an option. But I talked to a young person the other day who came up with an idea and I won't tell you what it is, but it's birds and a, another element of culture that, you know, like birds and landscape painting. It's yeah. not birds and landscape painting, but it could be. Now, the point about that is that, This person knows about this subject a lot, and no one else has done it. And it has an interest both in the bird natural history world, but particularly in this other world. Mm. And that's true. You know, Sam Lee's just written his book on um, the nightingale. Uh, and of course, Sam's got great credentials to do that, but he's a musician and a, and a folklorist. but he includes a lot of culture in it and a little bit about himself. But the point is, it's a book about the Nightingale in culture. So it's, it's got a subject, it's about something mm-hmm. and it's relevant because the Nightingale's disappearing. Yeah. So, you know, again, uh, so, many, so many of the most successful books are memoirs and it's very difficult for someone to see a way around that. Well, I would say find a subject. I'll give you an example, my colleague and friend Gail Simmons, who is a travel journalist, and Gail hadn't written a book, and she came up with an idea of a book, and the idea was simple, it was follow Robert Louis Stevenson in a walk that he did through the Chilterns about 120 years ago, so people don't know Robert Louis Stevenson was a, you know, Walker and wrote this book it's it's not a very well known book it's very short it's like an essay actually so she followed him on that route which is interesting the why me was she was brought up in the Shilton, so she had something to say about that but also she lived the peripatetic life because her father was in the army till she was 12 so actually she feels it's home but it's not quite home so there was a nice element there although that's a very minor element but the killer about this book was that the route that Robert Louis Stevenson walked and that Gail followed in the footsteps of was HS2. Oh. So suddenly, mm, that's there's no now. Story, and yeah. Brat published it, and it's a really good book called The Country of Larks. It's a brilliant book. I think Gail would say that if the HS2 element hadn't been there, it would have made a very nice long article for a magazine. Mm. It was only a three-day walk, so it's not like, you know, yeah. she would have struggled to turn that into a book. Yeah. That's and I think that's what makes it so interesting you know so mm. find a story and then be the person who can tell that story yes she had more credibility because she'd already been a very experienced travel journalist but you know everyone has to get a first book somewhere yeah you know, it has to come from say if you're going to write write books mm. um but the same is true about articles particularly feature articles you know if you know about a subject or it's local to your relevant they're not going to give it to someone else. If they want that article, they'll commission it from you because you've come to them with it and you have some local knowledge or specialist knowledge, you know. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's about that. But it's about sometimes starting with, you know, regional magazines, county magazines, local magazines, things like that, you know, websites. Just, you know, get yourself out there and then see where it leads but I think if you you know Gail always says that as a travel writer you have to have a specialism and hers was the Middle East which is quite a tricky one now and now it's walking she does walking books and walking articles. Nature writers often don't think they have to have a specialism because they're already a specialist but they sort of do yeah. you know you sort of have to find and it can be an angle it doesn't have to be a subject it can be that you're the person who writes, or it can be something like, you know, I started first 10 books I wrote were mostly about garden birds. They were were, um, reference works. They were not new nature writing. You know, there's lots of books like that that need to be written. Travel guidebooks, nature guidebooks, you know, start with that because you get good practice. You understand how a book works. You don't have to start with the one book you've always wanted to write. In fact, that's probably a really bad idea.
0: No, I think that's, um, that's in, invaluable advice, actually. But you you mentioned, you know, A, not necessarily starting with your dream book, but also how a book works. That's a phrase I'd just like to unpick a little bit. Um, you know, as somebody, I, I've written a lot of articles. Um, I've done some longer form sort of short books, you could probably call them. But it's that it's taking that idea from head to paper. It's ordering mm-hmm paragraphs and and the story um as somebody i have a you know, monkey mind i have a very busy head and i i find that hard taking the thoughts and putting them on paper even just you know running spend more time in the wild full time like figuring out what the plan is for the day i have to do my morning walk of about four and a half miles and i don't come back through that door until i know what i'm gonna set my you know what my intention is so yeah. when it comes to writing a book say you've got a concept um you know for for simplicity we could start with garden birds because you know we we've all got um some kind of outdoor space we've we you know many of us are familiar with our classic songbirds how would you take a concept an idea and structure that initially that first step um just to with the intention of a book that's a very
1: good question i mean with non-fiction you plan it out i mean actually novel writers i know plan it out as well but of course with a novel of course you're only limited by your imagination well with non-fiction the good thing is you should be limited by reality there are
0: limits yeah (laughs) Um,
1: so there's lots of ways of doing it I mean the classic book nature book is a year on my local patch I've done it twice three times possibly Dominic's done it Dominic Cousins uh Mark Cocker's done it you know um loads of people have done that maybe now it's a bit of a a cliche, maybe, but it goes right back, of course, to Gilbert White and John Clare and all those early naturalists, where they were forced to live in a place. I wrote one during lockdown because I was forced to be within a mile of where I'm sitting now for three months, which coincided with the spring. So that became my story. So you can turn something quite small into a story. So you know, a structure that is chronological helps. Although, funnily enough, not with memoirs. Memoirs should never be chronological. Don't
0: they should have it. a
1: chronological aspect, but yeah. you, know, you don't start at the beginning. <laughs> um, what, I'll give you an example. A better example, probably, is a real example I've done um, recently, The Swallow. And this started off, well, firstly, I'd already done The Robin and the Wren. So I had a structure, except my structure of those two books was January to December, which fits very well in with their life cycles. It starts and finishes at an interesting place. Both the Robin and Wren are very connected with Christmas and and December because of the Wren hunt. So, you know, you've got a dramatic ending as well, uh, an interesting ending. And I'd made the decision on those books to mingle culture and biology all the way through, rather than having a separate chapter on the culture, for example, which I could have done, and indeed initially planned to. With The Swallow, I looked at it and thought, yeah, the biggest mistake sometimes with a book is to do it the same as the previous one. So I looked at it and thought, well, I need to make one obvious change. Monthly clearly doesn't work. I need to make it seasonal. Okay. So it goes spring, summer, autumn, winter, and then a little epilogue waiting for spring again.
0: Nice,
1: nice. And the winter, I went to South Africa. So I knew what I was going to do in winter and I plan it out. I do plan it out. And I say, you know, it's pretty obvious with the biology of a swallow that the spring will be arriving back, courting, nest building, egg laying, you know. Yeah. And then around June, when I start summer, you go, right, what's over oh, well, and Now it's feeding young. You know, I'll put that in the summer chapter or whatever. And then, you you know, an autumn, of course, is getting ready to leave and leaving mm. and the journey. So you already know what goes where. Then I overlay onto that, the cultural aspect. So I think, well, where shall I put the um, stuff about, I mean, some things are obvious. A lot of them are, a lot of cultural aspects of the swallow is to do with spring. But with the other birds, there was cultural stuff that I just dotted through the, the book. And you just sort of look at it and think that probably goes there. But, you know, you're always reworking it when you write it. And then what you do is what I call the Swiss cheese principle, which is people <laughs> always say, you know, you, you start... Where you know. So, when I wrote my very first book on my own, Birds and Weather, I'd worked out I was going to have some chapters on the weather, then some chapters on birds and spring migration, autumn migration, birds in winter. And then I thought, well, I'll do seabirds separately because seabirds and weather is a very specific thing. And then some chapters on climate change. And then when I started to write it, I thought, which of those chapters is completely self contained? And the answer was obviously seabirds. I knew exactly what was going to be in it. Yeah. And I sat down, planned it out, did the research, and then sat and wrote it. When I'd written that chapter, I thought, okay, I can now move on to spring migration. Yeah. Because again, or birds in winter, because I sort of know what it's about, you know. So the key thing with any structure is knowing what goes where. Um but some books are much more difficult my book on bird names mrs rose warbler was much more complicated because i wanted it to be chronological and subject based so it does sort of go sound birds named after their sound their colour and pattern their habitat habits their habitat and then eponyms birds named after people so but that was a really complicated book to to write and to plan and, imagine. and it, there was an iterative process to it you know that thing where you You write the plan and then you think that's not quite working. So you think I'll start here. So I started with that again. I thought I will write some of the chapter on birds named after people because it's really obvious what they are.
0: Mm.
1: And I planned that out, wrote that. And then I thought, okay, And that fits a certain period. They were all 18th, 19th centuries, more or less. So then, you know, again, then once you've written some of it, you've got the style, you've got your voice and you go back. And of course, in my case, it's a hell of a lot of practice. Helped by the fact that the first ten books I wrote were not this sort of book. They were, you know, how do you build an S box? Um, you know, a little page on the robin, a page on the wren, a page on the greenfinch. You know, they, they were reference books. So I learnt. I suppose I learnt a fluency in getting the facts down and mm-hmm. writing, and then broadened it out to slightly more ambitious things. But you know, so it is complicated. I mean, come on, my um, MA in travel and nature writing, well. <laughs> In two years, I'll
0: tell you how to do it. Maybe I will. <laughs> no, I think it's, um, it's, really, it's really good sort of diving into this because I think um, the sort of one of the big takeaways as well, as you touched on earlier, with anything, it's about time. You know, this isn't, you know, making an Instagram story. This is, this is getting in the zone, finding your flow, finding your style, doing your research, getting it down, putting it in order. Like there is a lot to it and a book isn't just yeah. going to spring up overnight
1: exactly and you yeah. have to just do it and the other thing is write. don't worry too much about editing it write it write stuff get it out then look at where it goes together but certainly when I start a book that's how I do it I did that with I'm doing the swan that was my fourth biography mm-hmm. and that I sort of thought right I'll have I'll start with swans flying towards me which happens to be the opening but that's sometimes nice. you write it and, it, and it, you move it much later in the book yeah and quite often I write the introduction or the end of a book I mean, obviously you'd think you'd write the end at the end but I quite often write the beginning at the end as well
0: yeah I can see
1: how that would work
0: yeah (laughs) because you
1: know what you're leading up to the key thing is you're telling a story you're trying to lead the reader in and what a colleague of mine who did BBC training used to call it's a slightly um, odd phrase the main intentional question and what he meant by that was you set up the question at the beginning of the book. So in the Robin, I set up the notion that the Robin is Britain's favourite bird. In David Lindo's poll and I talk about why it is and then talk about how odd that it is, given how vicious they are, you know, and given there are lots of other birds in the world that are <laughs> quite pretty and cute, you know, so why is it Britain's favourite bird? Mm. And I end that prologue by basically, you know, setting up that question. So the reader's thinking, oh, I'm going to find out. Yeah. With a wren, it was why is this bird so weird? Because they are so weird; <laughs> they're so different from any other bird. And I know why? It's because they evolved in America, so they're not a they're not a European bird. They they, they behave so many things. Wrens do are so different from any other bird. Hmm. And so that became a theme that runs through. You don't always get that theme before you start. Yeah. You know the bird names book, Mrs. Rose Warbler. It's what my friend calls it. Uh, and he borrowed this from Henry James, the novelist, the story of the story. Okay. It's like, okay. You've told me what the book's about. It's about how birds got their names. What's it really about? <laughs> and what that book's really about is the very long human relationship with birds and the deep irony that the more we name them and the more we discover and realise are separate species rather than races of the same species. So we have more species now than we've ever had. At the same time, more and more are under threat
0: wow
1: so that that and that conclusion came to me about six months before the end of writing the book okay you know towards the end i I thought what's this book really about and then i said so you know you you then have to make sure the reader understands what you mean but it's what graham calls the story of the story my editor and he's absolutely right it's you know and and that's why the books that sell really well and do really well it's not by accident partly because they're very well written both those books are but it's mainly because they have a bigger story than that's it the 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 story that's there and sam lee's book on the nightingale which i'm reading now which is a lovely book again the bigger story is it's that classic thing you know how can we put value on a nightingale is it worthless because it has no economic value or is it priceless Mm, so and that's that's I mean, fundamentally, I suppose that's what all nature books are about. it?
0: Yeah, no, I think it's that I like that. It's, it's it's almost being open to the evolution of it as well. You have a concept, you start and in, in truth, you don't know where it's going to end up because, you know, as you yeah. dive in more, you, you just need to stay open to that journey, I guess. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, you have to be open-minded, but you also have to be very organised and say, no, that doesn't belong in this book. And when people write their first book, their biggest problem is they put far too much in. Yeah, compacted in. put everything in. (laughs) And even Gail had that. She said to me afterwards, she said, the editor looked at it and said, you've put in quite a lot about your childhood. Some of it's really relevant. The rest of it is interesting, but not relevant. Okay. So just because mm. it's interesting doesn't mean it's relevant to that story. That's it. Yeah. And, that, and that's, yeah, that's the classic thing. That's why, of course, if you write a book on birds and weather, as your first book. You don't have that problem because it's not really about you. <laughs> not book.
0: about you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, nice.
1: I'm always reminded as an author by Mike Dilger, my dear friend, the TV presenters line where he said TV presenters tend to be the people who at cocktail parties um, have been chatting to someone and then they say, oh, oh, Abby, that's enough about me. What do you think of me? well nature books are a little bit look at me i'm out yeah yeah and and i always say that a good nature writer and there are many they are like a good radio presenter like my old friend brett westwood they are the trusted guide to the reader their ego isn't there they're there of course the author's there in the book but their ego isn't there Mm. And that's quite a tricky thing to pull off. Yeah. Um, most nature books should be about nature and the, the author should be a presence in the book as a radio presenter is taking you and showing you stuff that they can see and you can't. Yeah,
0: yeah I like that. I think that's a good comparison. We're just taking a quick break from the podcast because I want to ask you a few questions. Are you looking to feel more confident and comfortable when exploring wild places, to build more meaningful relationships, or contribute somehow to a bigger picture? Well, I truly believe that our Patreon community can offer you all of these things and more. You can join for as little as three pounds, euros or dollars a month, and every penny goes towards supporting Spend More Time in the Wild and our mission of helping people get outside for the benefit of mental and physical health. At the same time, you'll gain access to perhaps one of the most encouraging, supportive and inspirational online spaces I really believe you'll ever experience. Now here's one of our Patreons having his say.
2: Hi, my name is Trev Joyce from Bristol in England. I became a Patreon in September 2020 after discovering the Spend More Time in the Wild project and Abby Barnes inspirational and motivational videos. As someone with mental health issues and being a believer that getting outside into nature is one of the best ways to cope with this, I couldn't have hoped to find a more appropriate source of help than Wild. And through becoming a Patreon, I had the opportunity to be a part of helping to shape the future of Wild. Being a Patreon means that I have access to a fantastic like-minded community where support and encouragement for each other is always lovingly and passionately given and received. In fact, the Patreon community are now a part of my life. I think wild is a fantastic way of bringing like-minded people together of encouraging a greater awareness of all that nature has to offer and of promoting better physical and mental health and I'm proud to be a patron of the wild project.
0: Thanks Trev. So why don't you join us today at patreon.com forward slash spend more time in the wild to gain exclusive behind the scenes access and so much more. All right, so I would like to take a bit of a shift now from, from writing to, to TV. So you left the BBC in, in 2011, but before that, uh, working as a producer, I mean, you've sort of alluded to it a bit of a, an, an all-over job, very all-encompassing, but really enjoy, enjoyable. There we go, that's the word I'm looking for. Um, what sort of your proudest moment of, of working in the TV? Because you did a lot, and I'd, I'd really like to just dive into that a little bit more.
1: Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about TV is when you do a book, of course you work with other people you work with editors and illustrators and designers, but it is fundamentally your book. Mm. That's the joyous thing about it. And it might reach a few thousand people, which is lovely, and it might affect them quite strongly. TV is very different. It's very A, it's an entire team. In the case of Big Cat, Diary and Springwatch, over 100 people. Other cases, maybe four or five of you, but it's always a team mm. and you have an input to it and you're managing it as the producer and you're really a project and people manager and creative manager. But of course, with all these fantastic people you're working with. Uh, and so it's not so much yours, but it does reach far more people and sometimes to a really deep way. I think Springwatch as a whole has, has, has helped change the whole landscape and the way we look at nature. So yeah. I'm very proud of my TV work, but it it feels like ours rather than mine.
0: Yeah, I can see that. I don't that. say
1: my programme. I say our, our programme, but my book. Um, so TV is something to work in if you really enjoy working in teams, if you enjoy... Uh, I mean, it's one of the last manufacturing industries, actually, rather like writing books. You know, it's project-based. You're given a certain amount of time, a certain amount of money, and a certain amount of resources, and then you go and do it to a mm-hmm. certain standard. So it's not very different from... A proper manufacturing industry it's just a bit more complicated um it can be like nailing jelly to the to a wall you know <laughs> wildlife does not turn up when you hope it will famously when we had a focus group for the very pre-spring watch in 2003, we had wild in your garden and we had a focus group beforehand and we were telling this group of people that we were going to do live wildlife television which hadn't been done for about a decade And this guy sat at the back and said nothing i said sir do you have you got any thoughts on this he said live live wildlife live wildlife on television you mean you'll be filming wildlife like live as it happens and I said yeah he said hours and hours of badgers <clears throat> doing booger all Which if I ever write my memoir badgers doing booger all might be the title <laughs> um and of course he was right you know a lot of the time I mean always said with springwatch it was like turning up to the most beautifully equipped theatre with the most extraordinary crew of behind-the-scenes directors, stage managers, lighting people, sound people, you know, uh, script writers, everything. You just don't know if the actors are going to bother to show up. And if mm-hmm. they do show up, I don't know what they're going to do. So you can forget the script. Um, and it was a bit <laughs> yeah. like that. But live television was very exciting. Funny enough, the, the series I'm most proud of by quite a long way and uh, I think it lasts as well as any of them, is a very small series of BBC4 called Birds of Britannia, which is a four-part series on why the British are obsessed with birds, which, funnily enough, didn't really involve bird watching. It was very much more about history and culture, which is my big thing, really. If I have an area I specialise in, it is the history and culture of British wildlife and birds. And that, for me, that was a joy. I had a lovely team of only four of us. It was a total delight to make... Um, I went and interviewed wonderful people, including Sir David Attenborough, Desmond Morris, Bill Oddie, Mark Cocker, Helen Macdonald. you know, all these fantastic experts. Um, and we just put it together without any interference, because it was for BBC Four, and you get a lot of interference in television um, from idiots. Um, and that was it. You know, it went out, and people loved it, and people still tell me they love it. And you know, it, I was very proud of it. It was a lovely thing to do. Mm. So I think that's, yeah. but when I look back on my TV career, when I look back at my books, I'm proud of them as books. When I look back on my TV programmes, what I remember is the people I work with. Yeah. It's being standing watching Killer Whales. Yes, that was exciting, but I'm with John Aitchison and Chris Watson and Mike Dilger and Bill Oddy, you know, four of my favourite people, um, working on Springwatch working on Big Cat Diary, you know, the lovely thing about telly is you're basically working with people of enormous talent, men and women who do things that you could not possibly ever even think about doing, like filming something in focus, Mm. or rigging the lines, the cables to the Nestbox cameras for Springwatch. You know, there's this whole range of people, spotters on Big Cat Diary, people who drive around and can spot a leopard at 300 yards. And you work with these people who are from really interesting and different backgrounds and have different skills, but you're all trying to do the same thing. And particularly on live television or something like Big Cat Diary, that focus is very strong, that you you all got the same um, aim in life and it's an absolute joy to do. Mm -hmm. Um, And I loved it and and I miss, I don't really miss it. The thing my wife said I would miss when I left, Suzanne said, you will miss working in a team. And running an MA in travel and nature writing with, again, very talented, really interesting people from very diverse backgrounds is very similar. Yeah. You're running the team and you're sort of, you are nominally in charge, but you have to listen to them as well. You have to take on what they're saying Mm. because they are people of enormous resources and talents. And that starts with the most junior writer or the most junior researcher in telly they've all got something to offer yeah you know so you you, you know so it's a joy and I work with you know Chris Packham, David Attenborough, Bill Oddie, Alan Titchmarsh, Kate Humble, Michaela Strachan and they are really nice people mm. and <laughs> just and some of them you know quite a few of them became good friends and and, and that's the lovely thing about telly when you meet someone again and i'll meet people you know and they'll say god you remember when we were on location you know cameraman i worked with years ago you know and you just think yeah that was fun wasn't it (laughs) you know we had a good time you forget all the shit there's a lot of crap in television a lot of you know if i was trying to out film today you know it's windy it's a bit wet there'll be planes going over the birds don't turn up it's the wrong time of year you know it's like you know it's a lot of that in television Mm-hmm.
0: It's, it's so it's special, so though. So special, like yeah. working through um the challenges with people. I mean, it's almost, almost like you know the military. You know, you're 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 working with somebody through these, you know, the adversities that might come on your way. Um, to to one degree, I mean, I suppose it's probably not the best comparison, but you know, and then you have the finished product
1: people who work in intensive care, people who work in the military. The only Mm. difference is, of course, television is not life or death, as my (laughs) wife, who's a nurse, often points out. Because, you know, TV people do take themselves quite seriously. And in the end, it's similar. You're absolutely right. It's very similar to the military, except that when we we did a series in Africa that was a total disaster run by the BBC Entertainment Department called Wildest Dreams, with the lovely Nick Knowles presenting, who I have a lot of time for. And I have to say, the team running it were total idiots and they hadn't got a bloody clue. And there was a guy who was our first aider and he was ex-Special Forces military. And one day he turned to me and he said, I have never, ever seen anything so badly run as this. And I said, Andy, you're spot on. But then Big Cat Diary, very similar project, brilliantly run. Mm. Not because of me, because of the way it was set up, you know. So And Springwatch was brilliantly run again, because in the end, even if you're the serious producer, which I was, you are relying on a team of people who know what they're doing. Um, So, you know, it's, when it works, it's wonderful. Uh, And it's very like that. But yeah, the difference is in the military, if someone doesn't do what you say, you put them on a charge. In telly, you'll have someone, you know, some cocky little researcher who was literally born after I joined the BBC. I remember telling me how to do something and sometimes they're right of course and you have to listen but sometimes you go you know what i do know what i'm doing sod off
0: <laughs> so you gotta stand your guard
1: <laughs> uh,
0: that's, that's... But, you know,
1: so but, but everyone thinks they have an opinion you know which is fine but in the end what your job is as producer is you have to stand, make a decision and stand by it may not always be the right one mm. but you do have to go ahead because otherwise it will be complete chaos you know you have to because you do have to produce something it's not like other jobs where you're just like you know you really need to exist Mm. and television's nice because everyone it's very clear what everyone's doing and in the end you do it and it goes out and people say nice things about it and it the key thing what you're always trying to do in anything to do with wildlife is convert people i am an evangelist for nature i convert people as most of us do anyone who's involved in any aspect particularly of the media, but conservation as well. You're trying to convert people to get them to get and understand and love nature and then do something about saving it.
2: Mm.
1: Fundamentally, that's what I do. That's what we all do. Yeah. Uh, And that's why working in this world is important. It's not as important as working in intensive care. Yeah. But it you know, life is about other things as well. And it is about it has a lot of value. people's lives in that way. So I think, you know, I think I can look back and think, okay, we did a really good job, but it's yeah. very much we, not I. Yeah.
0: No, I think that's um, it's nice to be able to differentiate the two, actually. You know, an earlier saying about going into TV, if you enjoy working as a team. And actually, I think that's, I think there's almost a... I don't know, sort of a Hollywood sparkle on, on, on working in, in TV and you could almost let your ego lead you to, to, to aim to work in, in that industry and what I love about, you know, in particular natural history is the reality is it's about the outside it's about the animals, it's about what you're seeing it's not so much about um, you as an individual, you're just there to facilitate that storytelling opportunity Absolutely,
1: also if you want to work outside, don't work in television oh. If you want to work on your own or with a very small group work in television as a camera person mm. people like Sophie Darlington or John Aitchison who filmed the Dynasty's Lions program they're I mean they're both really sociable lovely people but they're very good at being self-contained and self-sufficient and working on their own mm. so that's the problem with jobs jobs in tv or working in tv they're so different you know production yes you're nearly always in a big team yeah. But, for example, if you're a news correspondent on the environment, you know, you go out, yes, perhaps with a camera crew or whatever, probably one person nowadays, but, you know, it's more like being a journalist. Mm. Being a film editor, you're working really mostly on your own, perhaps with the producer coming in and other people coming in. So, you know, again, it depends what kind of person you are. But if but if you genuinely find it difficult working in teams and compromising then television probably isn't for you
0: yeah I can understand that there's, there's so much I'd like to talk about in tv and I think actually you know it's potentially an opportunity for another conversation at another time um, but for now what I'd like to do is I'd like to jump back into the world of, of bird watching you know you were talking about um, we, we just talked about working outside and obviously the birds are outside and you are trying to facilitate people to, to build a relationship with the natural world. Somebody now, you know, is listening to this podcast. They're like, Oh yeah, I've never really you know, thought about looking at the, the garden birds. Like maybe I'll, I'll pick up a book. Um, uh, but what is the next step? Like how let's focus on bird watching right now. How would you encourage a listener who is interested in getting to know birds to, to start? Where
1: would you point them? Well, firstly, they'll know a lot more than they think. Mm. so people say to me i'm not a proper bird watcher but i saw a heron the other day when i was on my walk walking the dog along the river it's like well you see you know what a heron looks like you know what a goose looks like and a duck and you probably know robin blackbird thrush might not know whether it's song or missile thrush Mm. that doesn't matter you know a surprising number of birds and in most of our lives you're only going to see about 50 species regularly unless you go somewhere special and you can learn those pretty quickly so i think the key thing is don't be frightened it's like learning to cook or learning a language you know it's 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 quite easy at first the very early steps are very simple and then it gets you hit a barrier get a pair of binoculars get a decent pair of binoculars they'll last you forever and they're not you know spend two or three hundred quid because it's worth it and then just start in your local area go to your park go to you know you have no choice at the moment but you know on your daily exercise walk um especially in cities i was going to say even in cities but especially in cities there's a lot of wildlife in parks or along canals or rivers um and check out what things are and get a book and look on the internet and you know don't do what some people do they'll send a picture of a bird into i mean quite sometimes reasonably bird watching magazine run you know people will send a picture i saw this bird on holiday in greece what is it and that's fair enough it's a warbler and it's a bit odd because it's in odd light and I look at it and think, I don't think it's a chifchaff, but it could be something more interesting. But people send in photos of stuff and you think, oh come on, you know, yeah. you, you haven't even tried to look this up in a book. You've got you've got close enough to get a photo of it. You know, do a bit of work actually. No no thing you do, if you were learning to knit, if you were learning to play, you know, tennis or football or paint, it's not easy. And bird watching is not easy, but you can learn it, anyone can learn it, and you will learn it pretty quickly. And within a year of going to the same place and working out what's there and making lots of mistakes, which is fine. I made them all when I was a kid. I still make some now, but, you know. Um, but it's fine to make mistakes. You know, we're, 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 we're educated in a way that suggests mistakes are wrong. They're not. You know, you, you see a bird and you think it's something and you think, well, oh, that's odd, because they're not meant to be here in, in winter, well, if they're not meant to be in winter, it's not that one. If the book says they're very rare or not found in England or Scotland or wherever you live, it's not that one. It's mm-hmm. something similar. So look at what it might be and then think. But, you know, it is hard at first, particularly what we call little brown jobs. You know, things mm-hmm. like, you know, linnet or pipit or Skylark you know, or red wing can all look slight. Mm, what's that? You're not quite sure, you know, and you don't see them often maybe, but make an effort and you will learn, you know, and, and the joys of doing it. And I, I, I know this because as I say, when I first met Bill Audien, I, I remember seeing a speckled wood butterfly. saying, what's that? So it's speckled wood. It's a really common butterfly. And I thought, oh dear, I know small daughter's shell, red admiral, comma, brimstone. That's it i better learn some of the other butterflies it took me one spring and summer because there's only about well there's only about 20 species you're going to see commonly and then you go and look for the others mm. so it's really not very difficult you know um, and it is and that
0: analytical rid- process isn't it that it's in that diving into it in that exploring you know oh, oh, what what, what color is its beak and all of those different things and and the, yeah. the, the bars across its eyes that that's where the learning is and as you're flicking yeah, through the it book as well,
1: or it's, it's mm. a young a young girl or a young robin, you know mm. look like a robin and have a red breast okay look it up oh right you know you were right first time it is a young robin, and it is difficult I take people out birding and I'll look up so oh, all field fairs red wings and they're like how do you know I say well, I've done it a lot <laughs> you know it just comes with practice yeah But it's worth it. And I get a little bit cross. There's been some debate recently on social media and sometimes in articles where people say, do you need to name everything? You know, and I wrote about this a lot in Mrs. Moreau's Warbler. And yes, you do. Because once you know what it is, you can learn about it. And if you don't know what it is, then how are you ever going to learn about it? Mm. And if you say, well, I keep seeing these big birds of prey around, I don't know what they are. Well, they're buzzards unless you live in Oxfordshire, in which case they're kites. But, you know, make the effort to find out what they are, ask other people, join a local bird club, and then when you find out they're buzzards, oh, well, why are they flying like that? Oh, well, actually, they're using thermals to go up. Why do I see more in spring and summer than I do in winter? Oh, maybe, you know, because it's warmer and they're rising up, or, you know, what? Well, that's that funny sound? Oh, that's the buzzard making that sound. Oh, right, you know, so now when you hear a mewing sound, oh, there's a buzzard, that's how you learn. People say to me, I mean, Brett Westwood said this. He said, people say two things. They say things like, well, I've never seen a woodpecker. And he said, well, you know, you walk around Stourbridge where he lives and he hears them all the time. He doesn't see them very much. But you hear that sound of a green or a great spotted woodpecker. So learn it, you know. um, and, And he also said, people say, oh, we don't get those round our way. As if somehow you are cheating or making it up, or you have some magic power. You know to magic something. Now Brett has found insects in his garden and to be fair he knows more about insects than I That you know not about everything. He will find an insect in his garden which is a first county record for Worcestershire but it's in a small back garden in the town of Stourbridge which suggests it's probably quite common in Worcestershire mm. and he's right because no one's bothered to look and you know that that I love that attitude you know he embarrasses me because, of course, plants and most insects I'm pretty hopeless on. But, you know,
0: we all have our things.
1: It's time. It's time. <laughs>
0: I bought it. <them. laughs> you know I, I really I really like that though because you know I, I'm very passionate about sort of a learning mindset and you know opening our ourselves up to learning about something in particular is also an attitude we can carry through with life um, and you know with birds in particular just sticking with that as, as a theme for me as, as a backpacker you know I'm, I'm traveling all over the world hiking different trails and you sort of begin to see the similarities between different species you know you sort of get familiar with for example how a bird of prey flies or you know you you, you just choose into the environment in a different way and you know oh like sometimes sometimes i'll just be walking through a forest for example and then i start to feel a bit uncomfortable and i'll stop and i'll realize there's no bird song you know and that could signal anything or oh like a wren is just making an alarm call over there something's disturbed it was at me you know and, and you really tune into the environment in, in almost a primitive way and that's something i really feel we've lost and when you have that you know i i I don't consciously remember learning all of these things, but I remember at one point I had a, a CD with, with bird songs on and I would listen to it over and over and over again. Like the bird songs in particular are, are my starting point or were my starting point. When you, you have that, it's just it's so special. And it's almost like I, I'd love to be able to to share that skill and that ability with so many people because it's a whole nother way of living and, and connecting with the landscape. Um, and I think it's really what we should all try and get back to because it certainly feels very good
1: absolutely and in lockdown of course many people did i'd call some mm. friends saying oh, do birds always sing this loudly until they always sing this time of year and it's like yes and yes That's so nice. go out and learn them and, and people do you know i have a friend from school a couple of friends from school who've never called themselves bird watchers but i was on with them yesterday and they'll say things like oh i saw a red kite the other day or the house martins are back not at the moment obviously but you know but again, they know a surprising amount because they've made the effort to learn without actually ever owning binoculars or going out birdwatching. Oh, this is in bushy bark now. Yeah. You know, I love that. I love the fact that they they tell me that. Um, Nick Hornby, when he wrote the wonderful book Fever Pitch about being an Arsenal supporter, which is a surprisingly brilliant book, um, talked about the fact that people will say, "Oh, I heard something about Arsenal, and I thought of you," and I get this all the time. Oh, wish you'd been with us the other day. We saw this bird. Oh, I heard this thing about birds and I thought of you. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. Uh, absolutely wonderful that people think that. You know, I find that really life affirming. The other key thing about wildlife is that it's not controllable. And most things in our life are controllable. We can choose what to do. I know a lot of things aren't at the moment, but you know broadly a lot of our life is either we are being controlled and it's very routine and predictable or we are controlling things we can choose to go on social media we can choose what we say with bird watching or wildlife watching you can't so you go out and you go do the same walk as I do a lot with the dog and then one day I see something and I think oh wow I've never seen that before it might be a rare bird normally it's not anything rare normally it's doing something odd Mm. or I've yeah. never seen them at this time of year even the other day I went out in my garden I made the silly pishing sound you make to attract birds and a long tail tip came out <laughs> on its own really weird, they're always in pairs or groups and then as I turned back I saw another bird out of the corner of my eye and it had been attracted by the sound I was making and it was wagging its tail down and it was a chiffchaff. chaff now, chiffchaffs breed in my garden they come back in March and they sing solidly from middle of March all the way through to middle of July and then they go Mm-hmm. down on the levels i see chiv chaffs in winter but i've never seen one in winter in my garden so context made it different but it was an exciting thing to see and it was that moment of just seeing this bird that makes you go oh gosh i didn't expect to see you here today yeah and in in the spring this happened we were sitting in the garden and we'd just seen a kite Red kite flying over, which we get occasionally, and Suzanne went, "Oh, swifts!" And I, I literally, I mean, I say in my book, I said, "I'm about to dot, metaphorically don my mansplaining hat." <laughs> no, darling, it's the nineteenth of April, so they must be swallow. Oh, they're swifts. Of course, they were bloody swifts. You know, she knows what swifts look like, and they flew over, and they were the earliest in our garden for, I think, twelve days. You know, but how weird, you know. But isn't that lovely? And I love that moment. And of course, you know, and again, the way they tie you into the seasons. And when I see my first swallow and my first swift, I always cry and I can't help it. I get a lump in my throat every year when I see the first one, because it's like, as Ted Hughes said, they're back. It shows the globe still working. Yeah. And that, you know, is incredibly important um and so I say to anyone who isn't I'm sure most people listening probably are interested in birds and wildlife but do make an effort do get out there do go out regularly do keep notes do keep a little diary you know because it will improve your life and at the moment it will improve it dramatically I mean without nature last spring you know and we were really lucky we live as you know in a lovely place in Somerset with a big garden and the weather was nice and I had quite a few people here. But there were eight of us self-isolating for complicated reasons I won't go into. But, you know, it was, we were so much luckier than most people. But without wildlife, I don't know how it would have coped, mm. you know. And, and I think most people who are into wildlife felt that. Yeah. Many years ago, I interviewed a friend called Mark Golly, who I was talking to this week for the first time for ages. And Mark is a really serious bird who lives in Norfolk, a brilliant birder. And I interviewed him years ago for my book, A Bird in the Bush, which was a history of bird watching. And I was interviewing him about the rise of twitching. And he, he was a young twitcher and he was very brilliant at identifying birds. And I just casually said, Mark, supposing you would never got into birds when you were at school, that sort of thing, like my mum and feeding the ducks. You know, if that never happened, what would your life have been like? And as I said it, we both looked at each other in complete horror at the idea that there was this parallel life where we both lived, where we had no connection with nature. Mm-hmm. And it was, and I suppose, I'm not religious, but I think people who believe in a faith, and I have a lot of admiration for them, I think they have the same thing. It must be similar if you are a Christian or a Muslim or a practicing Jew or whatever your religion is you know you must have that thing of thinking supposing I hadn't come across this I know I know friends of mine who, who feel this and I feel like that's about the natural world that, that you know my life would be inconceivably impoverished in so many ways I wouldn't have had the career I've had I wouldn't have met my wife because I met her through that I wouldn't have the children I've got you know all these things I'd be living some other life somewhere but you know, multiple in on a yacht somewhere, but. (laughs)
0: That's very thought provoking though. And um, I mean, again, there's so many things I'd I'd like to unpick, but uh, I recently read um, Joe Harkness's book, um, bird therapy. And obviously he's talking uh, quite a bit about mental health or from the mental health aspect. And you said the phrase life affirming. And that just like, that really touched me because it's a phrase I've used. And it's, I've used it in a concept again of nature, but also of interacting with people who understand you and see you and you've got that common theme running through and bird watching or just, you know, exploring oh. nature and the outdoors, it offers so much potential. It's not just about the animals. It's not just about the learning. It's about the community. It's about the self-care. Okay. And I'd just like to dive into the mental health side of things a little bit more. I mean, you've you've sort of touched on it um, in, in, in in one way, you know, getting outside, is good for us to put it very bluntly
1: why is that oh well birdsong is good for us it it, it has chemical effects i'm not a scientist but it has it it increases our endorphins it does Mm. good things and as you say actually probably more importantly than that as well as the unpredictability which i think is very important and the the surprise element and the seasonal connections it also introduces us to a community of people Mm. and i have many friends who are not bird watchers but i have many many friends who are and that has massively, again, improved my quality of life. I'm one of those very, very lucky people who, touch wood, has not had mental health problems. But I have people extremely close to me who have. And I find, it, I find myself feeling very powerless. because, Partly because of what they're suffering, but also because... I find it really hard to understand. I I empathise and I sympathise, but I can't put myself in their position, which is probably a failing on my part. And I do know, and as you've said, there have been a number of people who've had very bad or continue to have very bad mental health issues, either chronic ones or, or specific ones related perhaps to bereavement and things who get a lot of um, solace and life affirmation from nature. And sometimes that doesn't work, of course. And many have written about it. Emma Mitchell, Joe Harkness, um, you know, lots of people have written, you know, very good books, Dara, I can also, you, you know, about this. Um, so I think that, you know, we need to be careful that we don't see nature as a, you know, cure-all panacea for everything, because it's not. Mm-hmm. And clearly you've got mental health and physical health and then you've also got our current social and political situation where people, even people who've never had mental health issues, are extremely pissed off or and or are really struggling socially and economically. So even if they wouldn't say they had mental health issues, they are having some of the symptoms and issues related to that. And I'm very wary of saying, you know, nature does not wave a magic wand. But it can't do any harm. That's it. And it must help. It must help a lot of people. And maybe the reason I haven't had mental health issues in my life, and I've had, I've suffered from my fair share of bereavements and other issues, is because of nature. Maybe because, maybe I'm just very lucky, but I think nature has certainly helped. It's put me in a position where, I know how lucky I am yeah. in yeah. many, many ways. And, you know, so I think it's a really tricky one. And only people who've been through that, and I think it's fantastic that people like Joe and Emma and others are writing about it because it puts it out there. It stops it being a stigma. Bill Oddie, who I work with, of course, suffered for a very long time with very bad depression. And he talked about it openly in the media, didn't see it as a stigma. And that has really helped people. But as Bill once said to me, he said, when it's really bad, of course, nature doesn't help and and I can get that, you know. Um, So I think, you know, we live in a a very difficult world at the moment where things are very tough. The book I've just written, Skylarks with Rosie, which is about my my spring in lockdown, deals with a lot of these issues. I talk about a lot of the the things we're going through at that time. And I think it's almost become a historical document already, (laughs) less than a year later. Um, and partly the reason I wrote it was I wanted to keep a record of this. I wanted to have it. One of the reasons I write is to have my life documented, Mm. my life and other lives and my interaction with nature and my memories of nature. You know, they're all there somewhere in my books. Yeah. And to me again, that's very important. The older you get, the more important that is actually. Um, and, and so I suppose, you know, nature has that quality, um, and we'd be in big trouble without it.
0: Yeah, I, I completely agree. You know, and and I'm I'm the first person to say getting outside. You know, obviously, spend more time in the wild is all about helping people get outside for the benefit of mental and physical health. And I dive into my story, and and I like how you say, you you writing at you're sort of logging your life and your nature experiences. I do exactly the same through film, and you know what we're trying to do, or what I'm trying to do with the One Wildlife podcast is to really get the human back into humanity to get the wild back into wildlife, you know, to, to put things right back in their place and to bring them back down, um, to not, um, again, social media everything, but actually like you can just watch that animal without bringing out a phone. And, You know, the other day um, I I still, you know, very much struggle with my mental health and I I have to manage it every day through various things that I do. And um, just the weekend just gone, actually, I I found myself having a panic attack and my partner like takes my phone off me, shoves me out the door and is like, just go do the little loop. You know, it's only a mile and a half. And I did it and it was frosty and it was cold. um, And I was just like, I knew that I wasn't going to go back through the front door until I again had that forward plan. And I was walking along. And, you know, the, the farmers obviously cut the hedge in, in December and January and I could see the view and it was all very nice, but it wasn't hitting that spot. And then just out of the corner of my eye, because personally, I'm very interested in flora, so plant species, um, I spot some wild strawberries and there were actually some wild strawberries on the plants. I was like, oh, my gosh, like. Wow, and like i just got, I got completely absorbed, so I had a look you know a little rummage around, found some more, dusted off the frost, but before I did that, I really took in the 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 awesome shapes that the frost had left on the plants you know and and we also had the mist coming in, and the mist was um or the water droplets was was freezing on the plants almost in a in a blown direction, sort of sticking out almost like a uh, horizontal icicles. and it was just incredible, and obviously that pulled me out of the panic and into a fascination and awe almost. And I think it's very important. We don't lose that childlike sense of awe and nature brings that out of us, um, especially those of us who are naturally very interested in, in wild spaces, but that was an intentional step. So I think what I would say to listeners who perhaps are struggling with their mental health. And I think, you know, I I recently read a survey that 80% of, of adults are feeling more, quote unquote stressed you know as a result of covid and whatever that means i mean that's open to interpretation but as you say there is no harm in just taking a little bit of intentional time just go outside leave the technology i wouldn't have noticed those strawberries if my hand my phone was in my hand and just breathe just see just use your senses and get back in yourself
1: yeah listen see, touch, smell, taste. That's it. And you will forget. You know, and that's what I mean. In the short it works in the short term, but it also yeah. doesn't you describe that so beautifully. But of course in the longer term, these sightings that you have, particularly in one place, which I have here in, in Somerset, is they and you have now, you know, they they create like a catalogue, a sort of history yeah don't they, so, of course, the next winter you go out and something happens, you think, "Oh, it's a bit different now, oh, the strawberries aren't out this year, but oh, I've seen that, so you know you compare and contrast all the time, and that yeah. I think it gives a structure to life and and it makes us aware of the seasons. Of course, I moved from the city to the country fifteen years ago, that made a big difference, mm. but it absolutely does uh put you in touch with the seasons yeah and and I think again, it's, it's about a bigger universe than we are part of. Absolutely. Paradoxically, it doesn't diminish us as individuals. Mm. I think that's the fascinating thing about nature. You're still there. You're still you out there. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, and I think, you know, you, you've talked very openly about both the anxieties and, and mental health, but also... You know, feeling you need to get things done quickly I have to say this because I will always remember this taking you around bird fair and saying this is Abby she's just climbed Kilimanjaro and she gets her A-level results next week and I love the fact that you'd done those two you know it was like
2: mm. you're like
1: oh, I'm not sure I've done enough it's like mm, I think you probably I think climbing <laughs> Kilimanjaro, that's, that's quite <laughs> impressive you know and I think it's so easy particularly comparing ourselves as we do on social media and i do this i go on social media and someone's saying oh i've just got this new book out i think oh i've got a new book oh god's like you know we're not rivals we're friends these are often friends of mine you know mm. but it has that effect and you have that simultaneous thing of being pleased for them and then slightly worried you're missing the boat yeah does that make sense it does and I, think yeah. I, I got very heavily involved in twitter in lockdown and I hadn't been before I was doing the odd bit mm. and I've got two involved now and I do need to roll it back a bit um, and of course there is a real danger in it that a it distracts you but also you you start you get that fear of missing out thing and that really worries me because if I'm feeling that yeah. not yeah. being funny but all the things I've done and I'm very proud of and happy about mm. And I have, I'm very happy about my life. What must it be like if you feel you haven't achieved certain things and you're seeing all the time someone's yeah. doing the blog? I know when Dara brought his book out, no reflection on him, because he's great, you know. But people are going, oh, my God, I'm 18. I haven't published a book. And it's like, chill. You know? <laughs> but, but I'm the worst person to say that. You know, I'm the least chilled person in the world. But, um, But, you know, it's... It is difficult, and it's not always about quantity.
0: Yeah, less is you more know sometimes. It's
1: about, yeah, and about and yeah. about also how you are in your natural world.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that's 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 good food for thought. You know, I, I live by. I struggle with the comparison thing as well. You know, but I, I really try and say like we're not built for comparison. You know, we are all unique. We're all. Individual, we've all got our own stories to tell, our, our own way of communicating, our own interests, our own way of seeing the world. And um, you know, I, I like snow. Um, to put it very simply, and uh, recently the north has had a lot more snow than I have, and um, I felt a little bit sad about that. So you know, I, I I've watched everybody you know with their pictures on social media up in the mountains, you know, climbing Helvellyn or or Scarfell Pike or Skidor in the snow, and just feel a little bit of a, that you know FOMO fear of missing out, but. I realized that that was taking away from the fact that actually we had some stunning frosty mornings and I was there doing my morning walk because I'm a big believer, you know, like with birding, you've got your local patch. I have my morning walk. Um, I Mm. love that because you can see again, the transient beauty of nature, how it changes throughout the seasons. It's familiar. It's safe. Um, You know, I was losing sight of what was right in front of me because I wanted to be somewhere else. And in that, you know, I had to bring myself back in to get the power of where I was and the benefit of that too.
1: It's ironic, someone once asked me, you know, you've travelled all over the world, where's the most special place? And I often say, and I mean it, here. Yeah. Where I am here. Because it is a really special place, the Somerset, the levels where I live. And of course this year <laughs> and twice I'd written books about that. I'd written books that were broadly a year in the life of where I live. And then this year I had to. Mm. I had no choice. I had three months where I couldn't go anywhere else. And instead of going You know, and I should have been, I was meant to be traveling to various places, you know, things had to be cancelled. And I thought, well, they've been cancelled. Yeah. What choice do I have? Yeah, Yeah, I'm here. So let's make the most of it. Now, as I say, that's easier here than some places, but it it is a good lesson in life because most of our ancestors would have spent their lives within a mile or two of their home. John Clare did most much of his life, early life. Um, Gilbert White did for much of his life, you know, so... I think we have to learn to appreciate it. And even on a day like this, where I'm looking out at my garden office and there've been jackdaws and rooks and ravens sort of being blown across the sky. And I just think, you know, sometimes you just think, yeah, that's, that should be good enough.
0: Yeah, that's it. We've all got to use whatever we can, whatever is accessible. Um, And I know for everybody, that's slightly different at the moment, depending on where we live and where we're stuck. But, um, you know, we can all do do little things and the little things really do add up. I'm a big believer in that.
1: Yeah. And it will change. It will will change. change. Exactly. Yeah. And we'll appreciate it more. Oh, absolutely. A in the Guardian, she said, I will never take for granted sitting in a pub garden in summer with a pint glass of lager with some friends again. And I thought that was a fantastic line because it's so trivial, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, but a couple of friends, local pub, drink, you know, nice sunny evening. Yeah, well, wouldn't we all swap That's quite difficult. a lot for that now? <laughs> so, yeah, you know, we will get through it. Um, but, yeah it's yeah. it's been very hard and it's been hard for lots of people
0: yeah no i agree but um keep looking forward. that's so all we can do well i think that's a nice place to um to start to wrap this up so with the one wildlife podcast the way i finish each podcast is i have 10 quick fire questions oh, uh, so God. short short answers but if you would like to go paraglide. into a bit more detail paragliding
1: no, paraglide! i thought you were gonna ask oh me. <laughs> yeah yeah
0: Oh, okay. <laughs> so I was paragliding um, yeah oh, so I <laughs> I 10 questions for you um if you're ready we'll kick it off with question number oh, one yeah. all right question one um what was the last book you read and loved
1: the last book I read was yesterday and I've nearly finished it and it's um Sam Lee's on the nightingale i can't even remember the title but it's a lovely lovely book
0: oh that's brilliant well um, i'll pop it in the show notes so that the listeners can have a look at that book um cool question two are you a morning or an evening person morning oh
1: yeah why i wake up early i'm awake once i wake up i don't go back to sleep And I work best in the mornings. I quite like evenings, but I don't work in the evenings.
0: Mm, No, I can relate with that, actually. Okay, question question three, I thought would be a little bit funny to be asking Siva Moss, but um, I'm going to keep the 10 questions as the 10 questions. If you were reincarnated as an ice cream flavour, what flavour would you be?
1: (laughs) Obviously chocolate. Yeah, and chocolate? (laughs) Maybe salted caramel. but
0: Tempting, tempting. Uh, okay four uh, what did you want to be as you were growing up
1: I think I genuinely wanted to be a writer
0: mm, of some nice. I
1: didn't really know what that involved but looking back and I know it's easy with hindsight so that but I think that's what I wanted to be mm. and
0: yeah it happened that's, that's, that's nice to be able to achieve that actually um, okay uh, five halfway what's your most unusual talent <laughs>
1: Um, I have a ludicrously good memory for facts. Yeah, well, and I can I, I can see that. <laughs> University Challenge mastermind. I'm like, well, obvious, isn't it? Yeah. You know, I just know them all. I don't know why. And conversely to that, and that may be question six, is I'm useless at anything that involves common sense, noticing things, <laughs> remembering things that aren't facts, like well like almost anything that my wife tells me Um, (laughs) so you know it comes with its problems but yeah I'm very good at learning facts
0: okay curious curious trivial fact fact. okay well (laughs) um who has inspired you most
1: gosh my mother actually that's nice very different from me single parent when it wasn't there were no single parents when my mother was a single parent, mm. um, and she had a really tough life. And she fought and believed in herself, but more in me. So mm. absolutely, she is the greatest influence on my life by miles. Oh, I
0: love that. That's that's beautiful, actually.
1: And she's still with me. Yeah, she died twenty three years ago, but she's still twenty four years ago. She's still okay. here.
0: Yeah, still cheering you on. Okay, um, when you're 80 years old, what uh, would you like to look back on at your life and feel most proud of?
1: That's not all that long, is it? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, obviously, I'm really proud of the work I've done. But I suppose in the end, you know, it's a cliche, but my family, my five children. um, And... I think having a lot of friends mm. and, and doing good with them, really. You know, I think being a good person to people, I, I try to do. My wife is brilliant at it. She is a saint and she's fantastic at it and everyone loves her for that reason. But I I try to do the same. So I'd like to think I look back and think I have touched people's lives and been kind and generous to them. Yeah, but I learned that from her
0: there you go I like that though that's nice (laughs) okay this this next question is really deep what is your favourite food?
1: almost everything (laughs) I love food I love food and good wine so if I had a last meal I don't know I had it on my 60th birthday beef wellington and a very good bottle of red wine with the gin and tonic and a few other things but yeah
0: it's evolved
1: <laughs> Sorry, I'm <not> a vegan.
0: <laughs> yeah, everyone everyone does does their thing um okay you've alluded to this but i'll ask it anyway uh what is your favorite outdoor space
1: i think i think at the moment it's the loop it's the three miles it's a mile from my home altogether yeah the furthest distance but it's a three mile walk and it's always slightly different and, mm. and my place and down on the coast when we're allowed to go there, which we're sort of not at the moment. But I did go on at the new year just before lockdown started, you know, the, the, that area. So it's, it's it's usually one of my several local patches, you know, because because it's mine. Yeah. It's, it's
0: your space, yeah. And the last question is do you have any catchphrases or mantras or sayings that you live your life by and in which you steer your ship?
1: Gosh. That is a really hard one. I'd like to think it's be kind, be honest, be generous. I don't feel I live up to that all the time, but that's what I, what my wife calls, what his uncle's being generous of spirit. That's nice. I think that is the most important thing. She demonstrates that. And I think she's passed it on to me and our children. So I think that's, that's probably the one. Mm.
0: I mean, I can certainly say from our friendship that, um, you know, particularly when we were connecting before a few years ago, I felt you were insanely generous and supportive. So if at any time I can say thank you for that now.
1: <laughs> That's good. But it's I really genuinely enjoy it. I wrote about this the other day, mainly it's because I'm not if I was a, a, a half a generation above you guys, I think I'd, I'd be worried. You know, you're all going to come up and take my job. If I was in my 30s or 40s, I'd be like, well, you know, it's all right having all these young people here. <laughs> but at my age, I'm beyond that. I'm old enough to be your parent, and I'm old enough in some cases to be grandparents of some of the people I mentor. Um, and I really like that, because you're showing me that there is a, a group of young people out there doing amazing things. Um, and I get a lot back from supporting that group, both one-to-one, as you just said, But also collectively, I get a sense of, I like being liked, actually. That's one of the things I'm quite... (laughs) There we are. (laughs) No, I'm not sure everyone does, actually. I think some people are really, and I really envy this. But I I try to like people, and I really like being liked back. And I think the more you give, the more you get back. That is absolutely Mm. true in life. And it is hard. We're all busy, and you can't help everyone. And I do sometimes think, oh, God, I should be replying to that email, you know, But I do try because, you know, a few years later, someone will say to me, you gave me a chance, you really helped me. It happened recently, someone I'd met in television, I couldn't even really remember the circumstances. It was a little thing, but it had helped their career. And I thought, okay, that's good. I feel better about myself. And it is, you know, in the end, that's what it's about, isn't it? You know, I'm being, um, uh, you know, self selfish here but it, if you are kind to people and they are then therefore it comes back on you that's a good thing it's karma mm. isn't it yeah. mm.
0: Yeah, no, that's good, it's, and it's fantastic because, again, it's another way to build those those meaningful connections, which, as we talked about, can help on so many different levels—from career to mental health to to anything, really. So, no, um, yeah, that's nice. Well, Stephen, I've I've really really enjoyed this conversation. I feel like there's so many angles. You know, we could have gone down so many roads we could have explored, um, but everything we've touched on, I, I really think the listeners are going to enjoy. Um, so, just to to finish this up, is there is there anything you'd like to leave the listeners with? Um, You know, here we are right now in lockdown. This is this episode is going to go up pretty soon. So it will still be locked down here in the UK um, when this goes live. Anything you can leave the listeners with practical steps um, or, or advice that they can implement in their lives right now to to feel better, to access the outdoors, to connect with nature.
1: I think the key thing is, and it's about giving back. Don't forget what it felt like if you did get comfort from lockdown from nature in the last lockdown or this lockdown, however small, Mm. and if you did become more aware, as I think we all did, of the importance of the natural world to our physical, mental, emotional, spiritual health, and to itself, its importance per se, even if we don't exist, try not to forget that. Try to hang on to that, because when things do get back to normal, and they will, there is a real danger that we will make all the same mistakes again. And I think we now need to fight for what we believe in. That's something I felt very strongly about and it comes out in, in Skylarks with Rosie, that, you know, we have been led by beyond parody, the most incompetent and useless and corrupt government of all time, which takes some doing really. And we've got to do something about this in the next few years. So you know, this is starting to happen. There is a movement. and We need to all be part of that movement. We cannot sit on the sidelines anymore. That's it. I think if we are part of that movement and we see nature improving, which I'm optimistic that it can in the future, we make politicians realise how important it is, which they are dimly becoming aware of at the one minute to midnight. If we can do that, we will be able to change the world. We will be able to say to our grandchildren, great-grandchildren, whatever, future generations, we did manage it. We pulled it out at, you know, it's not even the 11th hour anymore, is it? It's it's too late for that. So I would say let's try to do that. And let's not say I'm not political because we're all political. That's it. We have to be there. But also enjoy enjoy wildlife, enjoy nature, enjoy birds. Yeah. It's great. And thank you, Abby. I've really enjoyed it.
0: Now, brilliant. Yeah, remain grateful and um, use our voice, I think, is is a nice way to end. So, well, Stephen, um, enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you so, so much for coming on. And um, I'll definitely let you know when this is up. And I hope we can chat again soon.
1: Absolute pleasure, Abby. All right, we'll brilliant. Thank you out on the levels when <laughs> we're back to normal.
0: I'm very much looking forward to it. All right, take care. <laughs> Thanks so much for listening to this episode on the One Wildlife podcast with Stephen Moss. It was an absolute treat to chat with Stephen about all things wild and I have no doubt that he has left you feeling inspired to head outside and explore your local patch. You can find out more about Stephen's work through his website www.stephenmoss.tv or through the show notes on our Spend More Time in the Wild website. Don't forget to hit subscribe and share this episode with anyone who needs a little pick-me-up. And be sure to check out our online community space at patreon.com forward slash spend more time in
1: the wild. We'll see you soon.